Right, uh, good evening everybody and welcome back to those of you who were here earlier. This is the third um, session of this half-day conference on reconnecting Europe. I'm Simon Glendinning. I'm the uh, Professor of European Philosophy in the European Institute and Director of the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, the Forum is one half of the um, organisational team for this event, the other half uh, the Evans Foundation, uh, to whom we're extremely grateful for their support in, in this venture. Um, we've been on quite a long journey. Those, those of you who have been here all day will have gone with it, but I'm sure some of you won't have. But we, we sort of began with a rather long-range view of uh, European history from the history of Europe's empire states um, right up to uh, contemporary conditions of a knowledge economy and how Europe has been transformed in that process. And we, one, one of the things that has been emphasised is that the European Union isn't, as it were, just a, an existing thing which gets affected by the world, but is part of the movement of um, politics in Europe and, and um, conditions of self-determination and um, nation formation that has emerged over the last century. Now, the Union itself um, has obviously had things to shout about, um, and typically one would think about the conditions of peace in Europe achieved that, at least in part, can probably be attributed, attributed to the existence of a Union. Um, very often, if you look at academic writings on international unions, they do signify peace, and... Uh, the, the condition of nation-states when they're only in weak, weakest possible alliances has very often been a condition of war. So the, one of the, as it were, primary ambitions of the formation of the Union will, in, its, in its early stages will have been to try to not, not eliminate war. I think the idea of perpetual peace um, was from the start or, or thought of as a myth. Kant, Kant who wrote a, a famous essay on perpetual peace, certainly didn't think it was possible. What he thought you could do was make war less likely. That's the best you could do. Um, but the uh, movement of, of, of the Union in the 20th century has tended to shift from questions of peace to questions of its legitimacy. And this has been one of the areas in which this issue about the connect, reconnecting Europe is very sharp, about the relationship between Europe's institutions and European citizens, who are, of course, also national citizens. And these uh, tensions are very alive. Um, uh, Joachim Almunia Al spoke about them first thing today. And uh, this evening, at our last session, we're going to have uh, two speakers who are going to address issues around European politics and government, and, and in perhaps, in a way, shaping a, a discussion that we could have around what's called democratic deficit. I've often wondered about this term def democratic deficit because there doesn't seem to be an opposite. <clears throat> There's no such thing as a democratic surplus. I mean, there may even be enough. I don't know. Anyway, um, our speakers tonight, uh, Marika Kleiner, who's an uh, um, associate professor of, of the EU and international politics, and she's based, at, like me, in the European Institute here at the LSE, and our guest speaker is Jonathan Holtzlag, who's Professor of International Politics at the Free University of Brussels. 
And as before, the first speaker will give a sort of what we've come to call a scoping introduction. That's a, a, a general outline of, of where we are. And uh, the guest speaker will have an opportunity to elaborate on whatever they want to elaborate on. <laughs> uh, and then hopefully we'll also have some time for some questions. There'll, there'll be microphones and so on. So um, without more ado, I think I'll hand over to Marika. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Simon, for, for the invitation, and thanks all for coming. Um, if you think this is uh, perhaps not the best turnout, then I would say I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, most of the time I speak at uh, large academic conferences, at panels, and there you're actually happy if you have four or five people sitting there uh, <laughs> looking a little bit bored, and uh, you are here just in order to to listen to us, and you're definitely more than five, so this is a, a really a great opportunity for me. Um, now, I have the uh, difficult task to give a scoping introduction, um, not having heard the term before and not really knowing what it is, so I'm not supposed to steal the main speaker's thunder on the one hand, but of course I'm not just here to... Uh, to present platitudes that you already know. So what I'm going to do is that I'm simply outlining the problem as I see it and uh, as it is um, stated in the, in the title of uh, today's conference and also in, uh, in, uh, in this specific um, session. So the title of the conference here is Reconnecting Europe, Bridging the Gap Between European Citizens and European Institutions. And what I would like to do is to first ask what is the problem, in fact, with bridging the gap or why do we feel like we should bridge what gap? The second is a question I would like to, to raise, what can be done? And this involves also asking um, how big is the gap and where is the gap between the EU and its citizens? And second and uh, most challenging probably, how can it be closed? So what is the problem at all? When we talk about the democratic deficit, um, it is in fact not a new term. Um, it is not a new debate. The term and debate about the democratic deficit has been there since the very beginning of the European Union. There's always been talk about the uh, democratic deficit, and the loudest voices were actually those that hoped to get a little bit more power through reforms that, um, that claimed that there was a democratic deficit, obviously, at the other side. So um, how can we measure, can we, we actually say that there's a, um, a democratic deficit or that there's any problem at all with the European Union? If you look at just measures, numbers, um, it's not absolutely obvious. So compliance, for instance, with EU laws is extremely high, um, even higher than in most, uh, most national uh, states and most member states. Um, more people have a positive image and many more people have a, a large majority have a positive to neutral image um, about the European Union uh, according to the Eurobarometer. Also trust, uh, although it has decreased, trust in the European Union is still much higher than trust in national institutions. And um, I was surprised about this too. My voice counts the, uh, this statement. Um, 
people who agree with this statement, uh, is, uh, the number is highest in 10 years. So um, in addition, even the support for the euro is now much higher than opposition to the euro. So can we say from these numbers that there's something wrong with the European Union? Uh, what then is the actual problem? I would say that um, the problem is that there's some dissatisfaction with, uh, uh, with the fact that the EU does simply not address or perhaps even aggravate what seems to be the most main concern in most countries, especially in the South, namely unemployment. In other words, for most countries, there doesn't seem to be an alternative to the European Union. You have to be in the European Union to function. But on the other hand, there's a general, nonetheless a general dissatisfaction with the way that the EU addresses the problem that concern the citizens. So history and also political science teaches us then that wherever there's a frustration and a feeling of absolute helplessness and no choice, voters simply turn away from mainstream <coughs> politics, debates, and parties. So this has led to a situation where now there are open demands more than ever for exit that have entered mainstream political debates. We have witnessed the emergence and strengthening of openly anti-EU parties and or parties that question the very foundations of the European Union, such as freedom of movement, mutual recognition, and even a loss or lack of basic respect for each other. In short, so you combine the frustration of the citizens with an unpredictable political and electoral landscape and the unraveling of European integration and what we've achieved, accomplished in the, in the past um, seems to be a real possibility at the moment, now more than ever. So what can be done then in this situation? So the topic is about um, reconnecting Europe and bridging the gap between citizens and uh, EU institutions as if this were the problem and also the solution. And obviously, who can be against it, right? Who would say, no, 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 we, we should have a democratic deficit. But the answer is actually not that easy. Um, the first question I would want to raise is whether or not we want to close the gap at all because the EU was to some extent designed, deliberately designed to keep a certain distance to its citizens. Uh, the gap was deliberate and based on, for instance, the German experience uh, during the Weimar uh, Republic with democracy, but also the experience of interwar uh, protectionism. And so it's the insight that a stable constitutional democracy should not respond to every single swing in the citizen's mood, but has to remain truthful to certain principles that simply should not be subjected to politics. Um, in my view, there's actually a broad consensus across many member states that, um, on, even in some circles in the EU, that there should be a gap to some extent, even though it possibly could be smaller, when it comes to the single market's fundamental principles, the four freedoms, um, especially when it comes to the free movement of persons, services, but also labor and capital. So even though there's a fundamental disconnect, um, or some might say that there's a fundamental disconnect, I think the EU here has also proved um, remarkably flexible 
um, and to respond to concerns that were really legitimate. But I think there's, that there's a, a gap where it shouldn't be when it comes to monetary union. There's fundamental disagreement among all member states um, about the necessity of a gap in monetary union. One side arguing that politics should be kept entirely out of the making of monetary policy and that um, the ECB and non-majoritarian institutions should stick to monetary um, principles such as sound finances and low inflation, whereas the other side argues that monetary policy is not a goal in itself but should actually serve the citizens and be responsive to broader social demands. So the first view then dictates austerity. The second view demands more solidarity, and if that's not happening, a reintroduction of national currencies. So I think deliberating on the design of EMU and the gap that you want to have in this policy is one of the most daunting challenges and pressing problems uh, Europe faces today. And once we've identified a gap and decide to, that we want to narrow it, then the second issue arises, how should we go about it? The answer requires deciding whose interests actually <coughs> count, whose interests should be used to narrow this gap, and how do we aggregate these interests into actual decisions. The standard solutions in the past have been to create all kinds of channels to the EU institutions themselves. We have, at the EU level, a representation of state interests. We have the representation of European parties. We have the representation of social partners. We have the representation of citizens directly through the citizen initiative and also of lobbies and of regions. So this fact that the European-wide aggregation of interests takes place solely at the EU level has made the EU an incredibly difficult and complex monster in a way uh, where it's absolutely difficult to understand which interests and how go into what, uh, which decisions and thus also make it very difficult to hold decisions makers really accountable when you don't really know and cannot follow how decisions are actually made and whose interests are represented. So maybe then, if we're talking about really bridging the gap rather than starting from the EU institutions, we might want to start somewhere else, which is aggregating um, European interest already at the earliest possibility, earliest stage um, that, uh, that we have. So for instance, EU citizens already are allowed to vote in local elections, why not national elections as well? If Germany gets to decide the fate of the rest of Europe, why shouldn't other citizens, European citizens, at least those that live in Germany, not have a say in German decisions? Or when it comes to my case, why should the UK have the right to decide over my fate as a UK taxpayer? Right in its decision about my right as an immigrant. So why not give Europeans a voice at the local and national level much more than they already have um, at the moment? So to sum up simply how I scope the problem, 
Um, the problem itself is, uh, is difficult to locate, but I, I think it is um, the fact that anti-EU uh, rhetoric has entered mainstream and this, that this is now combined with an unpredictable political and electoral mainstream that has now really uh, led to a situation where the erosion of what has been accomplished in the past is an absolute possibility, it's a real possibility. And the questions that I would like to raise in this context is, first of all, whether or not there should be, uh, not whether or not there should be a gap, but how big this gap between citizens and EU institutions should be, where it should be, and also if we can't find alternative ways to close it. So with these remarks, I'll turn over to my uh, fellow speaker, Jonathan Hoyce. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, actually, Mareike said it all, so we can happily um, uh, retreat for, uh, for dinner. Um, no, uh, anyhow, uh, first of all, I'm, I, I must make a confession. I am not an EU expert. In my, in my daily life, I head, up, I head up the China Institute of the University of Brussels. In fact, yesterday I was finalizing a paper on nuclear submarines in the Pacific. Uh, so you, you, might, you might wonder what, what this uh, chap is, is doing here uh, tonight. Well, it's essentially by uh, working on Asia and also uh, by having been involved in uh, European policy towards Asian countries that I started to ask myself the same questions that, uh, that Mareike asked. Where do we stand with uh, Europe in this turbulent global order? And of course, the more I got confronted with these bustling factories in Asia, in China, in South Korea, the more I got the opportunity to exchange views with very confident uh, students in Chinese universities and then um, uh, went back to our dull national airport in, in Brussels, the more I started to wonder, is there a future at all for Europe in uh, the 21st century? How can we defend our prosperity? How can we, how can we continue to, um, to work in, in dignity? Um, and then also meetings with, uh, with Chinese politicians or Asian politicians can also be a wake-up call. I recollect in 2012 uh, and, 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 and uh, that we had uh, the farewell meeting with uh, China's uh, Premier uh, Wen Jiabao, uh, and after his formal remarks, he started a diatribe almost of 20 minutes about how inward-looking and protectionist uh, we, are, we, we were. Two months later, we got almost the same lecture of uh, the Indian Prime Minister. Europe is turning inward, is uh, retrenching. Uh, it's going to be difficult to trade with, uh, with you. And then there was Qin Di Chun, the chairman of uh, the China Investment Corporation, who basically uh, criticized the whole European Parliament for about 30 minutes um, that we were democratically uh, uh, dysfunctional and that our economy was, was rotten. So again, the question, where, where, do we, uh, where do we stand? I agree, first of all, that um, the main problem is not the democratic deficit. Europe is not suffering at all from a democratic um, deficit. First of all, if you look at the opportunities that citizens, that we as citizens of Europe have to weigh on decision-making, I think that these opportunities are far bigger 
than uh, what you would enjoy in any other part of the world. So institutionally, I think that um, our democracy, our um, uh, uh, organization of the democracy uh, is not uh, so much um, um, uh, giving reasons to complain. And then also if we look at how much importance Europeans attach to democracy, we are still very uh, attached to it. And it hasn't changed in spite of the crisis of the Eurozone, in spite of the emerging of populist parties, of uh, uh, neo-Nazi organizations and and political parties across uh, the European Union. The vast majority, uh, 76%, uh, still believes that um, uh, authoritarian parties, authoritarian political movements have to be banned. And that has remained constant uh, in the last 15 years. 86% of Europeans still feels very strongly attached to our democratic system. So that's not, for me, the issue. I think the problem that we are facing is not a deficit of democracy, but is the inability of our democratic system to deliver. And I think there, again, we are on, on the same page. It's the inability of our democratic system to deliver on the main things that we expect from any government, uh, whether it's authoritarian of democracy, uh, democracy, that is security, providing security, uh, and that is to provide, um, to provide uh, prosperity. My diagnosis actually is that um, this crisis of performance, if we uh, should put it that way, uh, exists at, 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 different, at different layers. First of all, I think it is very obvious that we continue to face a crisis of European politics, and that's the first layer. And that has not only to do with the fact that trust in the European institutions is still hoovering around 34, 35%, last Eurobarometer poll 37%, but has more to do with the fact that in spite of a huge urgency, we have still not overcome the distrust and the reluctance between member states to advance on key issues. Remember that since 2009, 2010, for example, all heads of state uh, highlighted the need for Europe to uh, play, uh, the European institutions to play a more robust role in defending our trade trade interests. Well, now several years after that, commitment was put on paper and after also the European institutions gave more authority to defend our trade interests, we still see month after month and in different cases that we bump into resistance of the capitals whenever the European Commission wants to take action to defend the economic interests of the 500 million European citizens. Second issue is that, for instance, on industrial policy, Again, we are running into resistance of all the different capitals because they have different priorities, because they have different important industries they want to protect with as a result that it is extremely difficult for the European Union, if not impossible, to stand up against the very aggressive uh, industrial policies that are unleashed at us from the United States, from China, from South Korea, and uh, and many other places. Energy policy. Like a week ago, two weeks ago, we signed off on the energy union. Wonderful on paper. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of aspirations. But still, if one looks closely into it and one assesses how much the member states are committed to invest in a pan-European smart energy grid, 
how much European capitals are willing to invest in a pan-European, a new pan-European um, network of uh, natural gas pipelines to become less reliant on Russia, nothing is moving at all. So that for me is critical. That's still the um, uh, disconnect between European institutions and, and member states is not going away. It has moved from the summits of drama and suspense that we know from 2009, 2010, 2011, to the more discreet meetings between ministers, uh, between ambassadors, but I think it still has the same crippling uh, effect. And that is indeed, as also Mareike uh, told, that is exacerbated, aggravated by the fact that we are seeing a gradual but um, wrecking demise of the mainstream parties, of the pragmatic politicians in the European Union. And it has to do with trust, and yes, indeed, trust in national governments, as was indicated before, overall is lower than um, trust in the European institutions. Even in this very country, if you compare it, like 26%, if I'm not mistaken, of the British people has trust in the European uh, institutions. It's only 29% for the national government, so uh, we, are quite, uh, we are quite close. But there is something even more disturbing going on, and it is the, fa the fact that if you look across the, the 28 member states, the mainstream parties, overall, again, overall the national elections are about to lose their majority. Um, if one looks at um, their share, the share of Christian Democrats, of Liberal Democrats, Social Democrats and so forth, in national parliaments, it's now about 50%. Uh, and that has been a very slow process, uh, all that, that already um, uh, takes place uh, since the 70s, uh, early 80s, uh, but has now, I think, reached the tipping point. So we might move to a period in which these mainstream parties <coughs> might have lost the ability also to uphold um, the pro, uh, project of European integration. Because let's be honest, these parties have been uh, at the cradle of European Union and also have been the main defenders of the European Union. So I think this is critical, um, the, the, the demise of the mainstream parties. And then, of course, the question is, is why? And then again, we are on the same page, but in a report that I did um, uh, uh, last year for the Trilateral Commission, we tried to quantify that a little bit, the relation between economic variables, economic sentiments, and political behavior. Something, uh, some, some things, I believe, are very interesting. First of all, if we divide the European population in five income quintals, trust in national poli politicians, trust in national governments, drops by 4.5% each quintal one goes layer, uh, lower, excuse me. And that difference between um, the richest um, income quintals, the high, highest income quintals, and the lowest has only uh, widened. Each income quintal one goes lower, the turnout during national elections drops by 2%. So there is a very, very, very important um, correlation and important relation between uh, the socioeconomic position and political preferences, and we have seen, uh, we have observed that since 2008 that has become uh, more pronounced. And that leads us to a third important layer of uncertainty, an important layer of crisis, and that is the gradual fraying, the fragmentation, and the weakening of our social model. Some call it the welfare state, there are many other names for it, but I think it refers essentially to the ability 
of a society, of a state, to provide to the majority of the people the ability to work in dignity, the ability to earn enough uh, without having to sacrifice on, on basic, dig basic dignity and to be also, uh, also to, sh to show some solidarity um, in, um, in, in, in that ability. Well, now again, um, we have the unemployment problem, which is very important, but we also have the uh, issue that the, the, the majority of Europeans is losing purchasing power, is, is losing wealth, so to speak. Uh, if we um, look at the evolution of the real disposable income of the 500 million European citizens, that has decreased by 9% between 2008 and 2014. 9% less purchasing power, so to speak. And that hasn't been so much an issue of inequality because um, that de decrease of 10-11% has manifested itself in the top, uh, the highest income quintal and almost as much in the lowest income quintal. But it is true, of course, that this is felt much uh, more by the poor people than, than by the rich. But generally, I would say is we are quite solidary in our economic demise. We are quite solidary in the experience of the fragmentation and freeing of our uh, social model. And that leads me to a fourth uh, important layer of uncertainty, an important layer of problems, and that is the gradual alteration of the international economic balance of power at our detriment. Europe is losing out. It's losing out very, very fast. If you look at the share of the European Union in global exports, well, that has dropped from about 28% in 2000 to 24% 2014. Not dramatic, but very, very important. If you look at our share in global exports of high technological goods, very, very important indicator of our economic prowess, that has dropped from about 42% in 2000 to 33% um, uh, last year. Also, in the uh, patent families that are relevant, that are important, Europe is performing less and less. More important element I would refer to is also the um, uh, fact that we depend more and more on external debt. Yeah? A lot of European, individual European states are uh, running now structural current account uh, deficits uh, and have to be financed by the few surplus uh, economies in the Eurozone and the European Union uh, that are left, but also increasingly by other creditors, the Gulf states, China, and so forth. And I think this basically keeps the European economies in a very unenviable position. Because on the one hand, we sustain uh, to some degree our consumption uh, through that uh, external credit, but on the other hand, also I think it sustains export-led policies, especially in Asia, um, that cripple and undermine the competitiveness of our own, uh, of our own industries. So that's, that's, I think, also uh, an important signal, an important indication of Europe's economic, uh, Europe economic demise. And then, of course, the question is, what should we do about it? Uh, how should we basically make sure that the European Union again starts to perform, that we again start to, uh, to deliver? First of all, let's recognize that we are all in the same boat. Um, even if still some member states believe that they can curry favor with the big guys, uh, with, with China and the US, 
even if the city of London still or the, 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 the government of the UK still believes that it can position the city of London as the new branch office of the Chinese banks and that the Germans believe that they can still uh, become the privileged supplier of high-tech goods and, and fancy cars uh, to China. For me, it becomes more and more clear that if we are on our own, it is going to be very, very, very tough to stand up against the economic power politics that these, um, these others uh, pursue. So I think it is going to be absolutely essential to come up with a trade policy that sort of balances against this, these new forms of uh, power politics. And often uh, these are pursued in very, very subtle ways. I'm not going to dwell on this at great length. We might uh, discuss that later on, but I think that this is um, a first important precondition. But then even more crucially is, of course, how we can, uh, again, um, get Europe out of its economic uh, swamp. And then again, for another uh, study, we have evaluated some of the uh, options that are widely discussed, ranging from um, competitive devaluation, internal devaluation, to um, investment policies, um, um, ex financial expansionary or monetary expansionary policies. And we come to the conclusion that none of it is very, very effective. Um, you can go to uh, my personal website and, and read the report, but it's really fascinating that, for instance, if we look at the uh, relation uh, between the evolution uh, and the average of um, labor costs uh, and uh, the fiscal burden in the 28 European member states and the, and the willingness of companies to invest, so the evolution of the fixed capital uh, formation relation is, is almost non-existent. We do not see that um, devaluation on certain uh, costs is basically or has encouraged uh, European companies to, to invest um, and to, uh, as a result, also possibly to hire more people. But the opposite is also true, that uh, a lot of uh, investment-oriented uh, policies and also a lot of um, Policies of monetary uh, enlargement also have not proven to be uh, very, very uh, effective. And that now brings us to uh, some arguments that have uh, renewed, uh, have gained uh, renewed attention. First of all is redistribution. Uh, governments have to intervene uh, more to redistribute, to make sure that the people in the two uh, lowest income quintals um, can also um, uh, survive. Now, of course, the problem with redistribution, especially um, uh, by fiscal means, is that it um, uh, partially um, helps to alleviate some of the problems of the poorest, but it does not alleviate Europe's economic problems, because usually what happens is that those poor families spend heavily a large part of their income on the fuel bill. That's money that's lost right away to the Gulf states and the energy providers. They also spend much more of their income on um, cheap um, consumer goods, which, which also gets lost straight away to the providers and suppliers of these goods that are largely in, in Asia. So in the short term, this might help sort of to mitigate social tensions somewhat in Europe, but in the long run, it does not create um, opportunities for those people at all um, to find um, decent, uh, uh, decent jobs. So what then? There is now again a discussion going on in Brussels about strengthening industrial policy. Uh, 
to um, provide more support to Europe's key industries. But the problem at this moment is that we are at the capacity utilization rate in the industrial sector that is about um, uh, 80%. In Italy, it's 71%. Um, so there is not really demand for a lot of financial support to industry, certainly no demand for these industries to expand um, their capacity. Uh, there is no internal demand for that, but also very, very difficult to bank on external demand, especially because you have countries like, uh, like China and others, also the United States to some extent, um, trying to uh, support their industries and at least um, to cater their domestic market, their consumer markets. <clears throat> by means of domestic industrial uh, production. So I don't think that is, this is going to be very effective uh, either. Then what? High tech, more technology. We have to invest more in, in smart, smart economies. Um, for an internal study that uh, has uh, just been completed for the European uh, um, uh, Commission, we found something very, very curious. Uh, first of all, the impact on our, of R&D spending of the thousand largest companies uh, of the European uh, Union on their profit margins has tailed off, has gone down. So there has been, um, uh, so to speak, more and more uh, investment in research and development, but the benefits for the corporate sector, relatively speaking, uh, have, become, uh, have become less pronounced. In a lot of sectors, there is even a negative correlation between R&D spending and profitability. The main finding of the report is that what matters the most, especially for the largest companies, is brands, brands, and brands. That this is still what allows um, the, 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 the large companies to profit much more than investment on R&D. I'm not saying that R&D is not important, but it's not the holy grail. And it's probably also not going to uh, be sufficient, at least, to get Europe out of its uh, difficult economic uh, position. So then what? How can we try to make um, uh, Europe um, uh, better in delivering growth and, um, and, and prosperity? We have looked around and especially try to find some success stories. Are there, so to speak, European member states that have proved to be the exception to the rule of stagnation and industrial uh, demise? Are there European um, uh, member states that have proved to be able to strengthen their manufacturing sector, not only services, but also manufacturing sector, uh, and at the same time also to make sure that this coincides with high enough wages, so let's say, a lesser decrease of the um, real disposable uh, income, and also, and this is for me very, very important, with higher levels of satisfaction. Because we can, of course, um, send a lot of people uh, back to the factory and back to um, uh, different kind of branches of the services industry, but if it leads to a drop of satisfaction, which is often true, uh, it also, I think, weakens the dynamism and the, the consistency of Europe's uh, society. We found three of these uh, member states. We found three member states that performed remarkably well in comparison to the others. It's not Germany. Of course, Germany did very well in creating jobs, but if you look at uh, other elements, like, for instance, the evolution of income and especially satisfaction uh, at work, Germany is somewhere at the bottom. The three hidden champions are Austria, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Uh, and that for us was, was quite a surprise. And then we asked, why, why, why is this happening? 
different reasons. Um, but let us first of all explain a bit why they performed so, so well. First of all, the three countries generated net uh, extra jobs uh, in the industrial sector, in the manufacturing uh, sector, even high-income countries, uh, countries with very high wages like the Netherlands and Denmark were able to add tens of thousands of jobs to the uh, industrial sector, even in niches where they have faced direct competition with peers in Asia, like electronics um, and so forth. Um, also very important is a very um, uh, positive evolution of, of, of incomes and also the fact that the um, uh, income inequality did not increase. That applies to the three, uh, to the three countries. Um, and then satisfaction rates that are three times or two times as high as the Western European um, uh, average. Satisfaction at work but also satisfaction about life in, uh, in general. Then the explanations. Um, Again, had nothing to do with uh, fiscal burden, nothing to do with labor costs, because as I said, labor costs in some of these um, countries are quite high. Um, it's, it's a more fine-grained um, um, uh, situation, uh, um, uh, conclusion that we uh, arrived at. First of all, a healthy mix of uh, industrial and services companies and also a healthy mix of small companies, especially family-owned companies and some uh, more, um, uh, let's say, multinationalized, internationally uh, playing uh, industries. That's, that's the first observation that we think is making an important, um, uh, an important contribution. The main element, however, we found to be education. Uh, and that again for us was, uh, was, was a very important surprise. Why education? Uh, and this was especially uh, the case for uh, Austria and Denmark. Uh, countries with what we call a dual track system with a lot of emphasis on vocational uh, training. And that has several important consequences on um, uh, the economic uh, situation. First of all, it leads to a much smaller skills mismatch. If you look at the UK, for instance, the skills mismatch is, is huge uh, and is, is, is really uh, devastating uh, for, the, for the labor market and makes it more difficult for uh, companies um, to, to hire. Especially in Denmark and, and Austria, skills mismatch is almost non-existent. It's much, much lower than the Western European average. But there is something uh, more uh, important to it. Um, we have done a lot of interviews in those vocational schools and also with, with students and with companies. One of the answers that we got time and again in these two, two countries is um, that industries believed, found, that um, their consumers uh, were much more demanding in terms of product durability, in terms of product quality uh, and so forth. Um, and that, that also allowed especially the small and medium large companies in Austria and Denmark to be sure of domestic demand and to have less problems with the, company, uh, the, the, the competition of cheaper goods that come from outside uh, the European Union. Uh, I was flabbergasted when I uh, heard that the first time, but we had at least um, uh, a few dozens of companies that we, we, we interviewed um, that basically told the same story. Um, there is um, uh, a more exigent uh, market here that allows us at least to uh, invest in quality and sustainability without having uh, to, to, go, uh, to go bankrupt. 
Um, also crucial is that um, the jobs that really matter in the economy, basically um, the, the, the jobs that also help to um, uh, provide in our basic needs, building houses, um, uh, maintaining infrastructure, uh, producing good food, feel much more proud of what they do in these countries than anywhere else in the, in the Western uh, world. Here it is usually um, the case that if you're not in sort of services industry, that um, the uh, satisfaction at work tends to be more lower, more, uh, lower not in these, um, in these countries. So why um, do I emphasize uh, these two, uh, three uh, interesting examples? First of all, because it makes me believe that what Europe has to do by and large is not to dismantle what we have built up throughout the last decades. That Europe has not to do away with its ambition to develop a social model that is equitable, that is more sustainable, and also that is more pleasant. Uh, I believe that essentially what it shows us is that if we um, lever up the market, if we um, uh, promote higher standards, um, that it's well possible to create jobs without um, creating a society that is even more fragmented uh, and even more unhappy, which probably also contributes to no small degree to political um, uh, dissatisfaction. So how can we do that? Um, I think it starts again with uh, more ambitious standards, but contrarily to what we do today, we should not impose higher standards to our own companies than we do to goods and services that we import from outside Europe. Today the situation is very often that we demand from our companies to be um, extremely um, uh, careful in, in, in quality standards, sustainability standards, but that it's often less uh, imposed on uh, what we import uh, from outside and also often less control. Um, and that of course makes it very, very difficult um, uh, for uh, our own producers. So I think standards tied to trade is going to be critical. Is that protectionism? I don't think so, because for me it's not a matter of discrimination. Is that bad for developing countries? I also don't think so. Of course, their politicians and ministers of trade will go all out uh, to protest against it. Uh, but very interesting is that in the last year I had a few discussions with friends that work for the planning bureau in China, the NDRC, about um, that, and they themselves think about elevating the standards. They themselves believe that for China uh, to get out of its own uh, economic problems, they have to uh, make a step forward um, and to build an economy um, that is more um, durable, more sustainable. So that is the first step. Second, I also believe that the 300 million of investment can discuss about that later, that the Commission tries to sink into the economy, has to be tied more explicitly um, uh, not to, um, um, let's say, obsolete industries, but to the uh, industries of, of tomorrow, the industries that can help us uh, to develop this new society um, that is uh, cleaner uh, and, more, uh, and more pleasant. And partially this is happening. Uh, more of the support, more of the investment today, as the package looks like, uh, is now tied to certain um, uh, quality uh, standards. But I think also that um, uh, across Europe there should be uh, a greater um, cross-pollination, uh, so to speak, uh, in terms of education. 
I think it is absolutely um, uh, vital for countries like the Netherlands and Austria that they move away from this uh, reprimanding attitude towards the South. Uh, of course, there are some conditions and rules to be respected, but that they can take um, a, a more interesting um, uh, position, that is to share their best practices in education with countries that need it the most. Countries like Italy, Spain, I think, can learn a lot from especially the education system in, um, in Denmark and Austria. And I think it can there in the long run also help to support entrepreneurialism uh, and, so, and so on. Um, then lastly, I would say that um, what is going to be very interesting for uh, Europe is also to come up with a, with a vision where all these vectors of thinking on the new economy and society come together in new urban policies. Uh, and that's some of the issues that I'm now working on uh, inside um, the Commission, that is uh, to try to um, identify um, how we can support um, the rejuvenation of European cities. Uh, cities. Because last year's barometer of satisfaction of um, uh, European city dwellers really shows that we have a problem in our cities that infrastructure is outworn, that the quality of housing is, is extremely bad, and that a lot of European cities, and London is of course an exception, Amsterdam is too, Vienna is, is also an exception, but because of their bad situation, their bad condition, have difficulties attracting uh, foreign uh, investment. So I think that could <clears throat> become a flagship of uh, at least uh, an economic strategy of the European Union, um, that sort of um, tries to, uh, to turn the tide. Um, in sum, the main problem for Europe is a, is a, a problem, a deficiency uh, in terms of performance. It's not a deficiency or a deficit of uh, democracy. The main solution is the economy. Uh, and to get the economy moving, I think that Europe has to have the courage to make a step forward. Um, and not um, to get stuck in a race to the bottom, uh, which we tend uh, to be uh, today, uh, but to have the, the guts uh, and the courage to make this push for a society, as I usually call it, that is competitive, sustainable, uh, but also pleasant. And I think it is economically possible, but certainly politically necessary. Thank you. Well, thank you, Marika and, and Jonathan. It's very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by one thing, Jonathan, that you were highlighting there, perhaps in your little triple at the end. What was it? Uh, sustainable something and pleasant. Competitive, sustainable and yeah. pleasant. Pleasant is very important. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm just struck, just uh, not, not that I think that that sounds uh, dystopian or, or terrible or anything, really bad, but it is much thinner than the kind of objective that had characterised Europe in its sort of most um, ambitious spiritual condition when the thought of Europe breaking out of a past dominated by myth, superstition and so on, breaking into a time of moral progress, spiritual progress civilizational progress, uh, enlightenment, and so on. And, and, and Europe's sort of self-understanding was a, 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 in a sort of unbelievable blossoming condition in that time. 
and it's, it, it does seem to be uh, unavoidable or uh, sort of you can't ignore it that um, we're now in a condition where it's much more like how can we make a, a well-functioning life support system and it, it doesn't have the gloss of those old dreams of Europe's modernity and, um, and, and perhaps we're, we're in a period of human history or our history uh, permanent or not, we don't know where those kinds of convictions in um, Europe being a sort of vanguard of world history has, has just um, uh, gone and so perhaps the best we can do is some discourse on optimising performativity and pleasantness and so on. But it is quite a change uh, for Europe. And um, Europe's political modernity with those, those movements into a bright new world um, were associated with uh, forms of um, conditions of security and prosperity and cooperation bound up with ideas of democracy together. Uh, and uh, when all that one can hope for is to create... Uh, a functioning life support system one could even wonder whether democracy will survive that kind of hollowing out I don't know uh, but it's certainly true that um, we remain with our question about the relationship between our governing institutions the institutions in politics which as it were have as their first duty the uh, satisfaction or establishment of conditions of security prosperity and cooperation and so on and how far the inhabitants of these new life support systems feel alienated from them or close to them or feel that their lives are pleasant anyway uh, we have some time now for questions I completely agree yeah. um, and, 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 and it's also my, my opinion as a young idealistic uh, European uh, perhaps that we should rec reconnect with that great uh, tradition of the past, tradition in which we spearheaded all the important revolutions from humanism over enlightenment to the industrial revolution, social revolution. We made the first moves to um, uh, the sustainability revolution. I think now it's time to consolidate. Uh, and and it's, it's not a matter of doing away with uh, those revolutions of the past, but I do believe that we have to make sure that the economic basis is led to make sure that we can consolidate. And in part of my um, economic strategy, there is a great element of, of humanism, and that is also what I recognize in countries like Denmark and, and, and Austria in, in particular. Uh, and it's perhaps very subtle and indirect and not even deliberate, but I have the impression that in their education system, uh, citizens uh, are more sort of socialized with um, the idea of, um, of humanism. That is, first of all, that they are more than just a producer, um, that they are just more than, than, than a wheel in the economic machinery, but that also they have to um, uh, try to develop um, their talents in, in, in a broader sense, that is, um, to use their manual skills, to use their um, uh, brains to be creative. Um, and then to fit that in a, in a broader whole. Of course, it's, 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 it's a very concrete, specific, and perhaps even trivial uh, example, but I do believe that you can infuse humanism in those uh, elements of our society um, as well. 
so I don't see a contradiction uh, between it. But what, what, what concerns me at the moment is the question, how can we make sure that the economic fundamentals are there to consolidate on all the revolutions that we have spearheaded in, in, in the past? That's Thank what you. I'm glad, I'm glad that came in. Thank you very much. We've got, got questions. Uh, who's got the mics? Okay, can we start at the back, right at the back there, please? And then we can come down here. <clears throat> Professor, thank you for your talk. I really do enjoy this, and this is one of the highlights of the day. We're coming to the end of the session for today. But something that you both have missed, you need to go back further in history. If you go back a little bit further in history of all the European countries, you'll have a better understanding of what is happening here today. In 1949 45 the Anna and Bevan and the Welfare State in the UK started, people start thinking about that. And this is a very good thing from 1945 ah, 39 come up with wherever the history would. Um, register what has happened to now 2015 the welfare state is still going and going very well but things have been dismantled over the years and the dismantling over the years is affecting the whole of the European Union and everything that you've been, we have been hearing here for the whole of today we need to have another perhaps just an evening of talks to clarify what we are saying for this particular day because it's so very important. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. So, we, yes, this is returned again and again today about the condition of a social model, of a European social model and its welfare states, and whether, as it were, whether the time of the welfare state is over or whether that can be revived in some way within the conditions that we exist in globally and nationally. What do you think, Marika? I um, absolutely agree with you. I think that, in fact, the welfare state is uh, a precondition for European integration, and we would not have accomplished the level of integration that we have right now if it hadn't been for the welfare state. Mm. Now, there's, uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, literature, actually, on this topic that shows that um, the most open economies tend to be also the most solidaristic um, uh, welfare economies because um, welfare states um, that sort of provide a net for those who might be, um, might be subject to short-term dislocation because of the uncertainties related to um, the restructuring of economies and uncertainties for, of, uh, from stemming from the global market, they, they fall into this net and are immediately sort of uh, resurrected, if you, if, uh, if you will, and you won't lose their voice, right? So they, they will be provided for, and therefore uh, the likelihood that they support open trade policies is much more likely <coughs> than if you would always... Um, 
expect to be on the losing side of an open economy. So therefore, welfare states are absolutely necessary for the level of integration that we have at the moment. It's even more necessary um, for European integration to even move ahead. And I think that the dismantling of the welfare state as it's currently done by, um, by or pursued by Germany through its austerity, that it, uh, uh, um, that it subjects the rest of Europe to, is actually undermining uh, the European Union more than anything else. Can I just want uh, one quick follow-up on that? Uh, one of the things that you see through the second half of the 20th century, the, the construction of the great welfare states, but also then not necessarily a dismantling, but a shift from a welfare state to a welfare regime where there could be suppliers from private as well as publicly owned things. In your analysis there of this uh, precondition of a welfare state, does it have to be a welfare state or does it have to be a good welfare regime? It could be a regime. Um, The most important thing is that it is a social security regime. How social security is provided depends on really um, the preferences of of each state, but the really important thing is that nobody should um, be subjected to a very, very high risk, but that there's the possibility that if your economic situation changes, is subject to change, um, then you get the chance to get back on your feet. Good, good. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. There is not so much a difference between uh, welfare um, being organized publicly or privately. You also see that in Scandinavia, where, for instance, in the healthcare sector, you have a, a nice mixture of public-private hospitals, and, and they deliver the services in, in a, very, a very similar way at the same prices. What I think is critical is, first of all, good rules, good regulation, um, that you also force the... Um, uh, private uh, providers of services to, um, to, to, to offer at an affordable price. But then secondly, also, you have to be able to sustain it economically. And, 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 that's, and that's the main problem, uh, that for many countries, whether you do it private or public, it, it, they can just not, not support it anymore. And then the tendency of some governments to try to make short-term gains by offloading the responsibility to public service providers in a, with, a, with a weakened bargaining uh, position uh, can be very detrimental. Uh, and you see that now uh, in some southern European um, uh, countries, especially Portugal, to a lesser extent uh, uh, Spain, some of the liberalization of services is leading to an, 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 an outflow on the current account because what you get is foreign investors coming in, providing the health care, providing some of the uh, public tra- transportation. And that, of course, leads uh, to a drain of hundreds of millions yeah. even for a lot of these countries on the current account and makes it hence even more more difficult to sustain it. So I think it, 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 it has to be evaluated from, from, from different perspectives. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Got a, thank you for the question. We've got one down here and uh, then one over here and then we'll look up to the back. To the back. Hello. Thank you very much. It was very, very interesting. Um, I'm the, the elephant in the room for me and everywhere, everywhere I go these days is climate change. And of course yes. we're in the LSE, which is the seat of the Grantham Institute and Nick Stern. Um, it seems... In terms of Europe taking a lead and dealing with its historical debt to the world in terms of emissions and the consequences of those, um, you mentioned a European integrated energy plan, but it seems to me that would be a huge win on almost every single level you can think of. I mean, in this country, we suffer from the machinations of the big six, you know, basically oligarchistic, you know, oligopolistic 
um, impetus here. And it seems that, you know, certainly in Europe, Germany is taking the lead. You know, it's ditched nuclear. It's moving to, you know, pretty incredible targets in terms of renewables, including for transport. I was reading about Deutsche Bahn the other day, you know, the intention to run an entire train system on renewables. Um, so it seems on every level, work, you know, clean, clean, whatever you, the things you were talking about, pleasantness, you know, um, social cohesion, that this is an, it could be an enormous win if only Europe would take a, a really, really strong lead on this. I don't know if it comes from the Commission, from the Parliament. You know, we have this huge in, in problem of incumbency with oil and gas industries who are dinosaurs, don't want to change. You know, Jim, Jim Hoffe in the U.S., president of the Environment Committee, you know, saying that, you know, we've got to, we can't intervene in climate change because God, God, we can't know what God wants for the world. You know, this is, you know, this is really, really serious now at this point. I know we are in a, I don't know where we are in the legal dispute with China on solar PV. Um, there are obviously trade tensions it's there. Dropped. What? <laughs> it's dropped. Have we? we who it. won? Who won? The Chinese, of course. Oh, of course. Okay. <laughs> but it seems to me that we could be a leader here, both for the internal European market and for the world. Thank and you. I wondered if you could say something about that. Yeah. Well, the first thing that my new boss, if we can call him that way, Franz Timmermans, did when he came in office was to drop some of the proposals uh, for a greener European uh, Union because. The attitude of him and also Juncker to some extent was that the European Union had to be less obtrusive in terms of providing regulation for uh, the components of products and, and, and so forth. I, I tried to explain him that he was wrong uh, <laughs> about, uh, about that. Um, there is a very, very powerful environmental incentive uh, to go ahead with more ambitious environmental standards, not only on climate change, but also others. Uh, for instance, the reusability of, of, of um, materials in products, I think, is, is key. Um, but if you just look at it economically, for instance, the import of fossil fuels. Now the prices of fossil fuels, uh, oil and gas, are going, going down. But nevertheless, as a share of our GDP, have increased from 4% in the 90s to 8-9% uh, 2012-2013. If then, of course, you have to continue to finance that with a population that continues to shrink and an industrial basis that weakens, it's not, it's not affordable. So economically, I think we cannot sustain this heavy um, dependence on, 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 on fossil fuels, especially if you think in cycles that we are moving to a low and then after a few years again to, uh, to a new peak. I think it is extremely, extremely dangerous. Um, also for the whole industrial sector, if we could advance uh, standards on um, the, the uh, let's say cradle to cradle principle, uh, that, that most of the components have to be uh, reusable, First of all, uh, I think it's going to give our industries uh, much more opportunities to cater the domestic market, the European market, than uh, external uh, suppliers. And secondly, it's going to render us much less dependent on uh, very um, turbulent uh, regions for the commodity supplies. Um, so there is a strategic and an economic uh, incentive um, for that. But we get lobbying from two fronts, and, and I can see that very clearly. First of all, you have the, the, the big multinationals. It's not the small industries. I think the small and medium-large industries are very much in favor of that because they know that they um, uh, can, can gain. But there are the multinational companies that uh, profit largely by playing off Europe against, uh, against other uh, markets. And then secondly, also, 
uh, for the time being, uh, countries like the United States and, and, and China, they lobby vehemently against uh, tighter regulation of the European Union on all, a host of environmental uh, issues. And we are no party, no party to withstand that. It's, it's, it's for me very, very um, disturbing to see how quickly we always give, on, give in on these, uh, on these issues. Even though we know almost certainly that in a lot of developing countries, as I mentioned uh, before, there might be an interest to join um, because look at it from a Chinese perspective like you you pay on average five years of your life because of air pollution uh, two-thirds of the um, um, uh, renewable uh, the fresh water reserves are no longer useful for human consumption so the, the, the price uh, of that development model is also becoming clear uh, in those parts of the world and I think if we can play it cleverly we can turn them into our allies but, but, but that, of course, requires uh, a more determined strategy from our side. Uh, okay, here, and then here. <laughs> you. Well, Jens Bagan from We Are Europe in Germany. We're a pro-European organization based in Germany. Uh, can I come back to, to the question of the day? Reconnecting Europe, bridging the gap between European citizens and European institutions. Um, I think the question implies a, a necessity to bridge the gap between the citizens and the institutions. But I'm afraid most of the European institutions and in particular most of the national governments are unwilling to bridge the gap. I'll give you two small examples which, which might help to, to understand our position. First example, um, the US president gives every gives a, um, a speech every year, State of the Union Address. And at the beginning of this speech, he addresses the members of the Parliament, of the Congress, of the United States Congress, and, very important, his fellow citizens. Look at the State of the Union Address that Mr. Barroso gave during the last years. He referred only to the members of Parliament, but he never mentioned the citizens of Europe which I particularly found, um, well, um, important in, in terms of how did he try to bridge the gap. In fact, he did not, he did not, he did not try to bridge the gap. I'll give you a second example. As a European organization, we, from time to time, we apply for funds of the, of the, of the European Union. And there is a very important fund, Europe for Citizens, which is, in terms of the topic of today, the most important fund the European Union offers. Um, this fund has a budget of yearly 18 million euro, which is less than the, United, the European Union spends for guarding its buildings in Brussels, for example. It's, it's nothing. 18 million euros is nothing. 18 million euro per year means that one organization per country is successful in getting funds from this program. So, and there, I know there were many national governments opposing higher budgets for this particular program, Europe for Citizens. So my thesis, my, 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 what I want to express is my conviction that bridging the gap between European citizens and European institutions is not really desired neither by the European institutions nor by national governments because actually they feel that the national governments 
should remain the centers of political process in Europe. And particularly want to point on the, on the London government, uh, which played a significant role in, in that Europe for Citizens program. So this is my, um, my conviction of what's going on in terms of the question of today. How do you look at this question? Thank you. Thank you very much. Marika, you go first. I go first. Um, I admit I'm perhaps a little bit cynical when it comes to the EU citizen because I, I haven't met him or <laughs> yet. Um, I, I simply don't know who this person should be. Um, and this is partly uh, because compared to um, the United States, um, um, well, Europe is not necessarily more polarized. The United States is extremely polarized, and I've lived in the United States for a while, and I couldn't even tell you who the you know, stereotypical American citizen is. Um, the, I mean, the, the level of polarization right now is, is really uh, incredible and, and really, really frightening. Um, but in Europe, um, in, in addition to polarization across in many cases, national lines. You also have many more cleavages um, in terms of, you know, where can you actually, on which dimensions can you be polarized? So I find it very hard to really identify the European citizen or the median EU citizen's interest. So therefore, I couldn't really blame EU politicians um, because they simply do, do not know who to speak to. Right, um, and then I, uh, therefore I would like to get back to something I said in, in my remarks earlier, which is that I think the aggregation of interests has to start much, 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 much earlier than it uh, takes place at the moment, namely not at the EU level, where you suddenly have a, you know, a babble of uh, voices. You actually have to listen to each other's interests at the very earliest opportunity, which is at the local level, at the national level, um, give citizens, EU citizens, a voice where they actually live um, and not only when it comes to, uh, to the EU level. And this would incredibly change the electoral politics in the member states. Just imagine that the UK would allow EU citizens a voice in the national elections it would not and not or not as much as it currently is an issue of immigration because the parties would also have to sort of try to get the, the votes of very important EU immigrants who are probably much more likely to turn up um, to the elections than, uh, than non-European uh, or no, to, than national citizens. Okay. So this is where I would start. Thank you. Jordan. Yeah, I, I, I have been puzzled by that proposal or that idea by sort of lowering the, the, the threshold for participating in, in European democracy. And many of my colleagues have done interesting research on um, deliberative democracy and applying that to, uh, to Europe. Now, you, you just mentioned um, if we were to include uh, immigrants in European member states in the whole uh, electoral process, would that make a difference? 
in, in speaking for individual countries, you see that um, across the different um, uh, political divides now and uh, nowadays, politicians have to make an effort to try to win their support because they can vote for national uh, elections. But does it allow? to overcome some of the uh, divides nationally. Not so, I think. Um, so I, I just wonder, I don't have an answer whether it's, um, it's, it's a plus or uh, a negative. I, 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 I think it still remains to be seen. But on the main comments that you uh, put forward, I, one of the things that surprises me and continues to surprise me in Brussels, uh, and I'm not a bureaucrat, eh? I'm, I'm just uh, with one foot in, in, in the system, is the total lack of empathy of the bureaucracy and the Brussels bubble for just the normal, normal guy, um, and and it's 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 a different community, uh, and 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 even in Brussels, the the disconnect between officials and and the Brussels population is is huge. I I remember very well was I think in 2012 when we had a very very um, lively discussion with some cabinet members about the need to go after some uh, South Korean producers. And then they say, no, no, we have to stand up for, for, for free trade and we cannot go, go that way and um, the, it's not so urgent and uh, we will find new opportunities. And then I challenged them and I said, come with me and we visit some small, small cities in, in and let's, let's see whether or not there is a, a necessity to stand up uh, for our um, uh, European producers. And it was for them the first time that they came in, uh, in an area where people lived with an income that was not uh, theirs. So I think this lack of empathy is, 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 is really devastating. Uh, and that goes for the bureaucrat, but it also goes for the, the, top, the top leaders. And, and with Barroso, I, I have experienced that several times, but he had other problems besides a lack of empathy, I would, uh, I would say. <laughs> um, whether it's desired uh, by member states, I think also in that regard, you, 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 you're right. Um, but then I ask myself, are the member states really serving the national interests by continuing to block uh, European uh, initiatives. And that's a discussion I had many times uh, with the Germans and the French after we got into difficulties and to anti-dumping cases. I was really challenging them and asking, well, are you really doing your national economy a favor by slamming on the brakes and, 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 and uh, discouraging the European initiative to exhaust its, uh, its mandate? And they can't answer that question. So I think also the, the EU institutions should have the courage from time to time to, uh, to, to challenge this so-called tendency to defend the national interest because often it's a sham, it's a fake. Uh, they do not do a favor to the national industry. Um, so I think the Commission's president has to dare to step out whenever we get tackled by the French or the German in trade disputes and say, you're damaging your own goddamn industry uh, and go and defend that message in the national parliament. So that's also, I think, a matter of, uh, of courage that has to come more from, uh, from, from the... It's uh, interesting. I, I, I hadn't <coughs> heard Marika say this before, that European citizens haven't met one. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting. Obviously, in a, in, a, in a purely statistical way, both of us have looked at some of the... Um, Eurobarometer results on how people self-identify, which is 
um, virtually meaningless, but not entirely so. And it is a very small number of European citizens who identify themselves as European only. There's a, a, a larger number who will say that they're European and national, and a much larger number who say they're national and European in that order. And, and I think that the, the sort of thing Marika's talking about where you might want to integrate European citizenship, as it were, in a national level is one direction one might look at, and the other is the other direction where you might want to upload much more uh, national and local process up into EU process. And the, uh, I, I think it's perfectly fine that you have national identities. If Farage says that he wants to allow the, 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 the people of this country to smoke uh, a cigar in a pub and to go fox hunting, that's fine. Let them do that. But I think Europe should be more a matter of a very conscious alliance of values and key interests, geopolitical interests of well, as well, than an obtrusive bureaucracy that decides uh, about the curb of a cucumber. Okay. Uh, and, and, and that's critical. Actually, just to finish the point, the, the, um, the last option that you're given in the Europe Barometer Lift is, is national only, and that's, that's quite small too. And the, uh, the, the vast majority, and including Britain too, Britain too will have uh, absolutely average results across, as, of the resu uh, over Europe. Uh, typically it will be national and European, but it will be up around 52% or something like that. So the, the two extremes are rather rare. Uh, and uh, <laughs> what, what the opportunity being missed there, clearly, is that there's a lot of people who are quite comfortable with insofar it's about identity at all and John Bruley was saying earlier please let's not think about too much in terms of identity but insofar as issues of belonging and identification are there there, there is a fairly strong majority in Europe who feel quite comfortably both national and European or European and national anyway uh, we have another question which is there Oh, it wasn't there. Actually, it was behind you. Sorry. <laughs> just, just to get it right, because she looked very disappointed, and it is her turn. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for the interesting discussion. Uh, so I have kind of a two-fold question. The first part is my perception about pessimists who kind of discuss about bridging this gap clusters around, like, two groups. So the first group kind of focus on the input legitimacies view. So they say that the EU cannot bridge this gap because like their fault, the fault in their view is that they kind of project some features, some democratic standards that we're used to perceiving at the level of nation states and they just project it at the level of the European level. They just don't understand that it's a more complex like political organic, the EU. And the second group is um, they kind of have this output legitimacy view and it's the problem with that kind of people is that they instrumentalize the European project see like it's valuable just as long as it kind of produce some, some results. And the second part of my question is that this question uh, that kind of led the whole forum, it kind of somehow assumes the idea that this um, perceived gap is homogenized around the whole EU, whereas I think that in different corners of the EU, or depending whether you're a member state or you're an applicant state, that kind of gap is perceived differently. 
So could you please elaborate on these And briefly, if you don't mind. Yeah, on, on, on the inputs, I really wonder what they want. Um, they can elect a very powerful parliament. They can elect their own national representative that go to council meetings and, 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 and shape decisions. There is now a, pr- a procedure to, uh, to, to, to make the European Commission do certain things if you have over, what is it, a million uh, uh, signatures. So what do they want in, in, in addition to that? Do they want to appoint uh, commissioners? Well, that's also something that is handled partially uh, by their heads of, uh, of, of, of states in which the parliament has a say? Do they want to appoint the officials in the European... So I, I, I wonder, what, what, what is it that we can deliver in addition um, that other, let's say, polities, democratic polities um, um, have at the moment or do not have at the moment? And differences between certain groups of member states um, certainly exist. Generally, the new European member states tend to be more positive towards the European Union than others for obvious reasons. They get more money uh, and, and they are more enthusiastic about the impact probably also that uh, the European Union has, has had on, on, on their economy, the political situation uh, and so forth. But I, I would like to come back, and sorry that I take a little bit more time to... You have to, to be to very you, brief. And it's a question. Huh. Like the, 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 you, you just said, well, is it identity at the level of, of states or is it at the level of the European Union? I wonder if European member states continue to be as dysfunctional as they are today to deliver prosperity, security, sense of unity to their people whether they are going to be the main focus of, of identity. Might it be that in the next or after five, ten years, you get regions, you get cities, you get provinces uh, with which people will identify uh, more. So I think also the fact that there is a sort of devolution of uh, identity going uh, on in, in many places of Europe has again to do with the performance deficit and the, the, the inability to, uh, to deliver. Very I good. guess. Okay, do you want the last one? Are you happy? I'll be very brief. Yeah. I'll, I'll try yeah. at least. Uh, the distinction between input and output is very useful in, in terms of concepts, but in reality, for the current situation, <laughs> it doesn't really help us because in order to, to deliver outputs, we have to agree that certain outputs are actually really you know, our priority. <coughs> and at the moment, we don't agree on what the main output of the European Union should be. For some, it's migration or curbing migration. For others, it's curbing or reducing unemployment. And we actually you, we need some sort of input in order to, to decide on what the priority should be. But our current ways of providing input are deficient, do not work, and which is why we need to rethink this from ground on. Thank you very much. Well, um, the, um, the vehicle of dreams and hopes of humanism and emancipation and progress had been for at least 200 years or 150 years, John will tell us exactly how long, ideas of the nation-state. Um, and perhaps Jonathan is right to say that in the course of the 20th century we've seen rather decisive weakening of their effectiveness. I'm sure the European Union has been formed in part in an attempt to enhance the effectiveness that they can retain. Um, I think one of the things we're seeing at the moment, we've seen today looking at the issues around political economy, that um, 
At the moment, the instruments that we've created to try to enhance that prosperity aren't currently working, that there's still a great task ahead for any, any form of international cooperation amongst these states in their weakened condition. Um, perhaps one day we'll meet a European citizen. Um, <laughs> but until then, uh, thank you very much. Those of you who have spent five hours with us today, thank you for staying with it. Uh, anybody listening at home, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, let's thank our speakers very much. Thank you.